all tender hearts of the message. And I say, please, you the pastor, just strengthen them and fill them with spirit. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Amos chapter number six. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we've been making our way through the book of Amos in this chapter by chapter uh, series. And tonight we find ourselves in chapter number seven. And I'm going to ask that you please pray for me. Um, I don't know why. It seems like I can be fine all week long. Uh, I guess as long as I don't step outside, I'm fine. But just the few steps I've got to take to get here, it seems like my allergies always get out of control. Maybe the devil's trying to stop me. I don't know. But if you would pray for me, I'd appreciate it. I won't preach the sermon one way or another. So just, uh, just bear with me if you would. Amos chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountains of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. And of course, when going through the book of Amos, we've learned that Amos is a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah, and he is preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel. He's preaching to the entire nation of Israel, but he's focused primarily on the northern kingdom of Israel. And we've talked about the fact that at this point in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, they are a very prosperous uh, nation. And there's a lot of uh, correlations and applications that are uh, similar to our, our current state because we live in a very prosperous nation. And the northern kingdom of Israel was a prosperous nation. And prosperity is not always a blessing, and it's not always something that's good. And I want you to notice that here in verse 1, we, we kind of see the theme of the entire chapter when he says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. He says, Woe to them that are at ease. And he's preaching to people who were at ease. They were taking it easy. Things were just... Uh, uh, very easy for them. And uh, he says the, here in Zion, and of course that is a reference to God's people, but you and I could very easily take this chapter and apply it to ourselves. We could say, woe to them that are at ease in the U.S. Because we live in a country that's very prosperous, and in many ways we have it very easy. And as a result of our prosperity, notice we, like them, trust in the mountain of Samaria. And the idea is that their trust is in their fortifications, their trust is in their military, their trust is in their strength, which are named chief of the nations. And at this point in the northern kingdom of Israel's uh, history, they would be looked at as one, one of the chief nations. And like I said, there's a lot of applications for us because you and I live in a country that would be considered the chief of the nations today, the most powerful nation today. They call our president the most powerful man uh, on earth for a reason. And uh, we live in the, if not one of, the chief of the nations. And I want you to notice that Amos begins to, to preach to these people that are living at ease that are taking it easy, that are uh, living not with urgency, not with uh, labor, but they're just taking things as easy as possible, and he begins to speak to them. And there's three different sections in this chapter that I'd like you to notice, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the sections, and if you're taking notes, and of course I always encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some things. I want you to notice the first section we see could be titled, you could head it up as self-deception. If you look at verses 1 through 3, and if you're taking notes for the book of Amos, you can say verses 1 through 3, the heading would be self-deception. Notice there in verse 2, he says, Pass ye unto Colney, and see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Now what Amos is Doing in verse 1, he just started to say to the people, Woe. The word woe is a word of warning. It is a word meant to tell you, Hey, you need to be careful. You need to pay attention here. He says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. And then he begins to say to them in verse 2, 
pass ye unto, and he begins to name these different locations, these different nations. He says, I want you to pass and make, make the rounds, is what he's saying. Pass ye unto Colney and see. He said, go look at Colney and, and take a look. And from thence, he says, go ye to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. These are all locations, cities, nations. And then he says this, be they better than these kingdoms or their borders greater than your borders? And what he is saying to them is this, and remember in verses 1, 2, and 3, we see this idea of self-deception. And the problem with living in a prosperous nation, there's a lot of benefits to living in a prosperous nation. Nobody in this room tonight is starving to death. You cannot starve to death in the United States of America. If you starve to death, uh, it's, it's because you were trying to. It is impossible to live in this country where there is an abundance of food, there's an abundance of everything, and the problem, there's benefits to it, but the problem is that we can easily deceive ourselves, and one of the things that they were doing, the northern kingdom of Israel, to deceive themselves, and one of the things that we are doing in the United States of America, and I'm talking about Christians in the United States of America, to deceive ourselves, is this idea, and we may never say it, but we just think that we are better than others. And what Amos is saying is, look, not only are you not better than others, but there are others that have fallen that were better than you. He says, woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. He says, he says pass ye unto Colney, and go from thence to Hamath, and go down to Gath. He says, be they better than these kingdoms? Are their borders greater than your borders? And what he's saying is, look, there are other nations that have also fallen that were better than you, and they have fallen. And the idea is that you are not different or better than other people. And what we, what our tendency is to hear about things like recently we heard in the news of this earthquake in, in Turkey and Syria. And I, you know, they were giving us different updates and all sorts of different things. My wife was keeping me updated on, on the things there. But they said that like 10,000 buildings, uh, structures fell. And I mean, tens of thousands of people uh, dead, orphans everywhere. And the tendency is for you and I to think, well, that would never happen here. Because, you know, we live in the U.S. and we've got... Uh, we, 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 we've got uh, laws that make sure that buildings have certain structures and, and that they can withstand certain things. But what Amos is trying, and by the way, God can send an earthquake that can destroy our buildings too. And what Amos is trying to tell the people is that not only are you not better, but those that are better have fallen and you can fall just like them. Now keep your place there in Amos chapter 6. That's our text for tonight. But go with me to the book of Deuteronomy, if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Towards the beginning of the Old Testament, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter number 8. And when you get there, please do me a favor and put a ribbon or a bookmark or something because we're going to leave there and we're going to come back to it. And we're going to come back to Deuteronomy 8 several times tonight, so I'd like you to be able to get there quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 20, just this one verse for now. Deuteronomy 8, 20, the Bible says, As the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. And I want you to understand that here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is telling the children of Israel, that if they would not obey and if they would not be obedient, that God is not a respecter of persons. And if God destroyed the nations before them, he would also destroy them. And I'm here to tell you that God is no respecter of persons and God is no respecter of nations. And if God would destroy them, he would destroy us. If he has to judge them, he will judge us. And let us not deceive ourselves to think that it'll never happen here that we are somehow different, that we are somehow better, because better than us have fallen, is what Amos is saying. Then go back to Amos chapter 6, if you would. Keep your finger there in Deuteronomy. We're going to come back to it. So we see several self-deceptions. The first is a deception that we are better than others, better than us, and the truth is that better than us have fallen. Then there's a second deception, and it is this. Notice there in verse number 3. Ye that put far away the evil day, 
The evil day is the hurtful day, the day that, that is going to not be a good day. And Amos is warning the children of Israel, because of their prosperity, they are self-deceiving themselves into putting far away the evil day. And the idea is this, that they have this deception that says that things will always be this good. That because everything has been good for us for a long time, it's never going to change. And things are always going to be this good. And the truth is that things can change in a moment. That God can choose to change things around us and destroy things around us. And we should not have this attitude that says that things will continue as they have gone. Because the truth of the matter is that God can bring destruction at any point. Notice there in verse 3, we have the third deception. He says that you put, a, put far away the evil day. And then he says this, and cause the seed of violence to come near. And remember, he is talking about people who are at ease, people who are at peace, people who have a good economy, people who have good salaries, people where everything is going uh, well for them. And he's t- warning them, he says, woe of your self-deception, what is a deception that might come through prosperity? It is this idea, we'll never say it out loud, but this idea that we are better than others. And the truth is that better than us have fallen. The idea that things will always be this good. And the truth is that God can change things in a moment. And then he warns them here, look at the last part of verse 3. He says, and cause the seed of violence to come near. Isn't it interesting how it seems like the more peace we get, supposedly, the more violence there seems to be and cause the seed of violence to come near. Why is it that every day we hear of mass shootings and and just acts of violence? And, And the idea is this, that oftentimes when there is a time of peace, and this is true of a nation, and this is true of an individual. When we have times of peace, when we have times of prosperity, when there is no imminent threat, there is no imminent fight, when there is no one to battle, we often end up just fighting ourselves. And this is true of a country. You, you, if we were at war, I'm talking about a real war, not like the fake things we've been doing for the last 50 years. If there was actually imminent threat and we were fighting, our country was fighting, there would actually be a unity within our country. You, you wouldn't really hear of all the riots and all the violence that is going on today, but because we are a country of peace and prosperity, we end up turning on ourselves. And that happens in a country, it happens in a church. When a church is not engaged and has their attention focused outward and is on the offensive, fighting the devil and reaching people with the gospel, we end up looking towards each other and end up fighting each other. You saw it, you saw it in the life of David. You don't have to turn there, but if you remember the story of David in 2 Samuel, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, The Bible says that when kings go forth to battle, he chose to take it easy. He chose to stay home. He chose to let somebody else fight, let somebody else battle, and as a result, he got himself in a lot of trouble. Idle time is devil time. And the idea is this, that when things are too easy, when things are easy, go ahead and thank the Lord. Go ahead and, 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 and praise God. When, 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 when work is going well and when the finances are well, when the economy is good, when business is booming, hey, praise the Lord, thank the Lord, all those things are great. But be careful to not deceive yourself into getting this proud, arrogant thought that, well, I must just be better than others because I'm doing better than they are. And things are just going to always continue this way because, of course, I am the source of this blessing. And we end up fighting each other and getting distracted. And, and, and what's interesting is, and it, it, over the last several weeks, of course, we've been planning this youth rally. My wife and I have been having a lot of conversations about teens and youth and youth rally and our teens and your teens. And one of the 
One of the concerns that I have for the next generation is that, and I'm a second generation Christian, but one of the concerns that I have is that sometimes these young people, they just have it a little too easy. And mom and dad have fought the battles. Mom and dad have fought the battles to get them out of the the public fool system. Mom and dad have fought the battles to to clean up the house. Mom and dad have fought the battles to get the alcohol out of the house, to get the drugs out of the house. Mom and dad have fought the battles, and because mom and dad had to fight these battles, fighting the right battles often will cause you to get right with God and be right with God. And David, when was he the most right with God? When he was fighting the Lord's battles. Sometimes we look at, I I told my wife, I'm not going to do it, but I told my wife that for the youth rally I'm preaching on Wednesday night, I'm thinking about, praying about different sermons I could preach for these young people. I'm not going to do this, but one of the sermons I was thinking of preaching, and and maybe I will preach one day eventually, I wanted to preach a sermon to the young people called, A Rebel Without a Is There Not a Cause? Because it seems like these these young people, they, they just don't have a fight. They don't have a cause. They're a rebel. They're, they're mad and angry and complaining and bitter and not content, but about nothing. There's nothing to be upset about. Life is good. Dad has fought all the battles. Mom has fought all the battles. They've worked hard to give you a good home and a good upbringing, but they, they, they've got this, this fight, but no cause. When was David the most right with God? When he said, is there not a cause? When David said, is there not a cause? When he got his eyes shut on that Philistine Goliath, that's when he was the most right with God. But when David said, I won't go to battle, that's when he got in trouble. I'm just here to tell you there is a danger to prosperity. Be careful about making things too easy for your kids. Make them work. Make them suffer. Let them suffer. Don't make them suffer, but let them suffer. Because oftentimes when we don't fight, and look, I'm a second generation Christian. You say, well, how'd you make it? You know, pastor, both, both pastors preaching at the youth rally this year, myself and Pastor Anderson, are both second generation Christians. Both of our parents happened to come to Verity Baptist Church. I'm thankful for that. And you say, well, how did you guys not get ruined? You know, you had people that, 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 that fought the battles before you. We just found other battles to fight. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been fighting battles. Fighting against the world, fighting against the sodomites, fighting against worldliness, uh, starting a soul-winning movement. And I'm just here to tell you, young people and you old people too, if you sit around and think, well, this is nice. We've got a nice building here. And things are set up nicely. We've got the homeschool group and we've got this ministry and that ministry and everything's been set up. I just have this concern. Even our church, you know, there was a time when we were just fighting. Fighting to stay in this thing. Fighting to stay alive. We're meeting in a living room and fighting to to striving together for the faith of the gospel. But there is a tendency when things get too easy, when the finances are there and everything's just kind of going well, to stop the fight. Stop the fight in the right direction and start the fight in the wrong direction. Begin to fight ourselves. Here we see... Amos saying, be careful about that seed of violence. Notice it, last part of verse 3. He says, woe unto them that have ease because they cause the seed of violence to come near. They don't have anything to fight, so they just start fighting something. Hey, I'm all for fights, but make sure it's the right fight. I want to say like the Apostle Paul, I have fought the, the good fight. When, when, when he said, he said, I fought a good fight, he, he wasn't complimenting himself. He wasn't saying, I was really good at fighting. That's not what he was saying. When he said, I fought the good fight, he wasn't saying, I fought well in the fight I chose. He was saying, I chose the right fight. Amen. He said, I got involved in the good fight. I got involved in the right fight. I got involved in the fight that had a cause. Some of you young people out there should consider whether you're a rebel without the right cause. I want you to notice, secondly, 
in Amos chapter 6 and verse 4. In verses 1 through 3, we saw this idea of self-deception. And then in verses 4 through 6, remember this is speaking to prosperous people. Woe unto them that are at ease. He says, woe because of self-deception, verses 1, 2, and 3. But then in verses 4, 5, and 6, he says, woe because of self-indulgence. There is a self-absorbedness, if I could say it this way, that way. I'm not sure if that's a word. The uh, spell check didn't, didn't put a little squiggly line on it, so I'm guessing I'm good. There is a self-absorbedness that comes with ease, isn't there? Notice these people were self-obsessed. These people were obsessed with self. They sound a lot like America in 2023. The selfie generation. Notice where their emphasis was, verse 4. Their emphasis was on sleep that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches. And look, I, the, the Bible talks about sleep, and I'm all for sleep, and I think you ought to get good sleep, and, I, and, I'm, and I, I try to get good sleep. I think if you don't get good sleep, you're gonna, not going to be a good worker, you're not going to be productive. But there's a difference between getting good sleep and being a lazy bum and being a sluggard. Here... Amos is pointing out the fact that these people, they're getting a little too much sleep. The Bible says, love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty. Open thine eyes, and thou shalt be satisfied with bread. He says that lie upon the beds of ivory, that stretch themselves upon their couches. Notice, an emphasis on sleep, but not only that, an emphasis on eating. And eat the lambs out of the flocks and the calves out of the midst of the stall. They emphasize sleep. They emphasize eating. Notice, tell me this doesn't sound like the United States of America. Notice thirdly, they emphasize entertainment. Look at verse 5. That chant to the sound of a vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. An emphasis on, on music and entertainment. An emphasis on, on, on debauchery, alcohol, drinking. Look at verse 6. That drink wine. Not in glasses and bowls. I'm against all of it. I'm against drinking wine in glasses and drinking wine in bowls if we're talking about alcoholic wine. But these people, they're not even, they're just drinking out of bowls. Notice an emphasis on self-care. That's the buzzword of today. Love yourself. Self-care. Now I think you ought to take care of yourself. But notice their emphasis and anoint themselves with the chief ointments. They're, make, they're, they're, they're taking care of themselves. They're treating themselves to a spa day. They, they, they're getting a lot of sleep and they're, they're eating well and a, a, a lot of entertainment. They chant to the sounds of the vile and, and they're, they're drinking wine in bowls and they anoint themselves with the chief ointments. And the idea is that there's, there's this self-absorption, cons, concern with self, I'm so tired of hearing people say, well, you got, I got to take some time for myself. Well, you didn't get that from the Bible. Right. I'm not against you taking time for your... Look, you, you got to sleep. You got to eat. You need to rest. Those are biblical principles. The Sabbath day, and I'm not against you taking a vacation. I'm not, I'm not against those things. But, but this idea that, well, you got you to take care of yourself. You know, you got to... Look, the, the Bible doesn't say... The Bible speaks uh, 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 ill about self-focus. You know what the Bible talks about? Others. Amen. Esteeming others better than yourself. There's a self-absorbedness to ease. Someone said this, self-indulgence, oh, that is the God of many. They live not for Christ, what do they have need of Him? They live not for His church, what care they for that? They live for self and for self only. And I think that could characterize the average Christian in America today. It's funny to me because today people, people's entire goal is to have their life be as easy as possible. Just, just ease. I just want things to be easy. Where would you get that from? 
Where, where does the Bible say that? Well, the Bible says that God wants to allow us to have, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, I'm here to tell you something. You didn't get that from the Bible. You might have got that from Thomas Jefferson, but you didn't get it from the Word of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that your life is to be a pursuit of happiness. Now, the Bible does say that happy is the man, and the Bible does say that blessed is the man, but that is always connected to those that are serving God. These people are self-absorbed, looking for what's easy. Looking for what's fun. I just want to have fun. I just want things to be fun. Look, I'm all for fun. And fun's good. But that's not what life's about. Get it out of your head. And especially if you're a man. And I'm using the term loosely. If you're a man and you're constantly whining and complaining about how hard everything. How hard. It's so hard. That's why God made men. To work hard. To, to, to do the hard thing. I like how Elijah said to Elisha, thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Quit whining. It doesn't make you look good. Life's not supposed to be easy. It's hard. It's hard. I, 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 just want, I just want life to be easy. No, you want to be a loser. That's what you want to be. Sit around getting high doing nothing all day. Deuteronomy chapter 8, look at verse 7. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. You know how God wants to bless you? God actually wants to help you. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks, of waters, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil and olive and honey. Verse 9, a land wherein thou shalt. Tell me this doesn't sound like Amos chapter 6 and the United States of America. A land where thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. This is what God says. God said, I'm going to give you a land where thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. He said, I'm going to give you a land with, with, with food, with resources. Verse 10, when thou hast eaten and art full. This is what you're supposed to do. When thou art eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God. For the good land which he hath given thee. But unfortunately, this is what we end up doing. Verse 11. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God. In not keeping his commandments and his judgments. And his statutes which I command this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full. And hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply. And thy silver and thy gold is multiplied. And all that thou hast is multiplied. Then thine heart. This is the problem. This is why God has to keep so many Christians broke and living paycheck to paycheck. Because God wants to bless you. God wants to help you. God wants to help you prosper. But he can't trust you because every time you get a little raise, you quit church. Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And the idea is this, that when God blesses you, it should make you want to serve and love Him more because you realize that the blessings came from Him. But unfortunately, we're so stupid, we get a blessing and we think, well, I must be the source of this blessing. And we forget that it is God. It is the Lord that gave you the land. It is the Lord that gave you the strength. It is the Lord that gave you the skills and the talent and the ability. There is a selfishness to ease. Keep your finger there in Deuteronomy. We're going to come back to it. Go go back to Amos chapter 6. 
Not only is there a self-absorbedness to ease, but there is a selfishness to ease. Look at, look at verse 6, the last part of verse 6. He says, look, he, he gave us this whole list of things. He, they, they, they get, they're getting a lot of sleep. They're getting a lot of food, a lot of entertainment. They're drinking alcohol out of bowls. He said they're, they're making sure that they get all the special ointments and the self-care. And then you say, what's wrong with that? Here's what's wrong with that. But they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. He said, everything's going fine. But then they look over at the one who's being afflicted, at the one who's having issues, and they're not grieved. Their heart's not broken. There's nothing that hurts for those around them. Look at Lamentations chapter 1. Lamentations 1, if you're there in Amos, if you go backwards, you have Joel, Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel, and then you have Lamentations. Lamentation 1. Lamentation 1, of course, the book of Lamentations is written after the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah the prophet has witnessed this fall. And he is witnessing people look at this fall and he asks this question. He says, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? He says, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see, if there be any sorrows like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the days of his fear anger. And he asks this question, Jeremiah, he says, you look at this judgment, and you look at this destruction, and you look at what God is is doing to these people. And he asks this question to those that pass by, because there are those that are passing by, and, 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 and there's no empathy, there's no care. And he says, is it nothing to you? All you that pass by. I think oftentimes because of the prosperity that God gives allows us in our lives, because of prosperity, we become so selfish. I gotta ask the question. If you believe in heaven, you believe in hell, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe in salvation. You know that there is a lost and dying world out there, people that are going to die and go to hell if somebody doesn't bring them the gospel. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? See, I, I think the problem is that we're so blessed. Things are so easy that we are not grieved for the afflictions of others. Go back to Amos chapter 6. In verses 1 through 3, we saw the self-deception. In verses 4 through 6, we saw self-indulgence. Then I want you to notice in verses 7 through 13, we see self-destruction. Verse 7. There now shall, therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive. Look at this little phrase in verse 7. And the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. And the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. You say, what does that mean? That is God's way of saying, the party is over. He said, it's done. This banquet you've been having, you've been stretching it forth, it shall be removed. I want you to notice that in these few verses, we see two things. We see God's hate, and we see their heart. Notice first God's hate. Verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, saith the Lord God of hosts, I abhor, the word abhor means to hate. I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all this therein. The Bible says, and what the Bible is teaching or what Amos is saying is that when our goal is ease and when our goal is prosperity, when our goal is to accumulate as much money as possible, as nice as things as possible, have the nicest house possible, the nicest car possible, the nicest clothes possible. And I'm not against any of those things, and neither is God. There's nothing wrong with money, but there is something wrong with the love of money. And there is something wrong with living for money. And there is something wrong when your entire life is consumed with this idea of taking it easy. What the Bible is teaching here, that when our goal is ease... God will hate what we value. 
So we value certain things and we live for certain things and we try to make a certain amount and we've got to have that nest egg and retirement and this and that. And look, I'm not against those things. But when we value those things and live for those things, God will hate the things we value. So God says to them through the prophet Amos, he says, I abhor the excellency of Jacob. He said, Jacob, whatever you have to offer, your best thing, your excellency, your most showing off thing, he says, I abhor it. He says, I hate his palaces. Your palaces are supposed to impress me, God says, and I hate them. He says, in fact, I will deliver up the city with all that is therein. And then I want you to notice in verses 9 and 10, he says, And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die. And a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house, and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, Is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, No. Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. When our goal is ease, God will hate what we value. And when our goal is ease, God will destroy what we value. This is something, if you study the prophets, it's something that comes up over and over. I'm not going to take the time to run through all the passages. When I was going through the book of Ezekiel, it seemed like this was just like coming up over and over and over again. It's so clear in Ezekiel and, and, and Amos is bringing it up here. And let me just make sure you, you get it and you've heard me say this before. But God will destroy whatever you make an idol of. In fact, the easiest way to get God to destroy something is for you to start putting that something before God. So it's always funny to me that the guys who say, you know what, I'm going to work hard because that's what God tells me to do. But I'm not going to work so hard that it's going to make me miss church. I'm not going to work so hard that it makes me miss soul winning. I'm not going to work so hard that it, that it makes me, uh, you know, not, not be able to spend time with my family and not spend time in devotions with God. For some odd reason, those guys seem to just be blessed. And then you got the guys who say, I'm going to quit church. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to go soul winning. I'm going to work on Sundays and I'm going to worship the almighty dollar. And their cars keep breaking down and their houses keep falling apart. And... Because whatever you make a God out of, God will destroy. That's why I, I, I tell you, say, where's the safest place for your family? You know what your safest place for your family, men? The safest place for your family is right after God. The safest place for my wife is for me to put her right after God. Safest place for my children is for me to put them right after God, right after my wife. You say, well, well, if you really loved your wife, you really loved your kid, you'd put them before everything. No, if I put them before everything, then God might destroy them. Because God, because whatever you put in the place of God, you are putting a target on. So if you like your business, make sure you keep it in the right place. Amen. You like your job? Make sure you keep it in the right place. Amen. You like your health? Make sure you use your health for what God wants Amen. instead of worshiping your own health. Because whenever you put something in the place of God, you're putting a bullseye on that thing. And God says, oh, you're trusting in the mountain of Samaria? You're trusting in the palaces of Jacob? You're trusting in the excellency of Jacob? No problem. Let's get rid of it. Amos is teaching them that God will hate what we value when our goal is ease and God will destroy what we value when we make an idol out of it. And then here in verses 9 and 10, it's just kind of interesting and, and it's, it's a little bit of a complicated verse, but I'll, I'll give you kind of my thoughts on it. It seems to me like Amos is using what we might call post-apocalyptic imagery here. And this is just my opinion. You can disagree with me if you want. But it seems like what he's illustrating here is that 
God is sending a disease to be a judgment against these people. But, and, I, and I'm, I'm, not just, I'm just going to show that to you just, just so you can see it. But that's not the point. The point is that it reveals their heart. And I want you to notice it. Look at verse 9. He says, And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house. Why would you have ten men in one house? They're running from something. Or they're hiding from something. They're, they're trying to, uh, we might use the word quarantine themselves. If there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die. And a man's uncle shall take him up. In the Old Testament, of course, the kinsman, redeemer, a family, the nearest of kin family member, their job was to make sure that the families were taken care of and they would serve as, an, uh, as someone who would come and maybe take the body after it was dead. Verse 10, and a man's uncle shall take him up and he that burneth him. Notice they're burning the bodies. And again, this is just my opinion, but it seems like He's using the imagery of some disease coming in. Ten men are in one house, but it gets to them anyway. If there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die. And a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him, so he's removing the body and he's burning it. So it seems to indicate some sort of disease. To bring out the bones out of the house, and shall say unto him, that is, by the sides of the house. So, so get the picture. Ten men hiding in one house, but they die anyway. And the family member shows up, and he's at the side of the house, the Bible says. Say unto him, that is, by the sides of the house. And he asks the question, because apparently he doesn't go inside the house. He's there to grab the bones, grab the body, that it may be burnt up. But they must have thrown the body out the window or thrown the body out the door because he asked the question, is there yet any with thee? So he's not going inside the house. He's just there to pick up the body and he's got, it, it, anybody else in there? And he shall say, no. <laughs> then shall he say, hold thy tongue. For we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. You say, what is this talking about? What is being referred to here? I, I believe that there is a reference here to people's hearts. Let me just run. I got to do this fast. We got, we got to be done. But go, go to Revelation real quickly. Revelation chapter 16. And let me just kind of show this to you. When God's judgment comes, the hope is, the goal is that our hearts would be, that we would break and repent. But sometimes the opposite happens and our hearts get hard. And we're not just talking about reprobates here. I mean, this is going to happen to, to Christian people. I'm not, talking, I'm not saying they lost their salvation. But they're, they're, you can get hard, hearted at God. Here's an example. Revelation 16, verse 8. Remember, it seems to kind of look like a post-apocalyptic imagery anyway. Revelation 16, 8, book of Revelation, and the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat. Now notice here, we have God pouring out his wrath. The fourth angel poured out his vial. We, we are uh, several angels into the vials being poured out, the wrath of God being poured out. How do the men of the earth respond and the men were scorched with great heat, notice, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. Please notice that God is pouring out his wrath, and instead of repenting and saying, God, you're, you are God, you're, you're in control, you know, have mercy. Instead, they blasphemed the name of God. They repented not to give him glory. Notice verse 10, and the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. Verse 11, and blasphemed the name, the God of heaven, because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. 
Oftentimes, the tendency when God begins to punish us, when God begins to chastise us, is to harden our hearts. And listen to me, when you, when you begin to feel the chastisement of God upon your life, when you begin to come to the realization that maybe God is trying to get my attention, you know, what I often say myself, if I find myself in that situation or advise people who find themselves in that situation is, look, you better learn whatever lesson God's trying to teach you quick. Amen. God's trying to teach you a lesson, just learn the lesson, get a passing grade and move on to the next lesson. But there are some people who are hard-hearted. They don't want to learn the lesson. And as a result, they end up blaspheming the name of God. And in Amos chapter 6 and verse 10, I I don't know what other way to kind of make sense of the verse, but it's, it's interesting that people are dying in the house. The guy that's going there to pick up the dead body, he says, is there anybody in there with you? And the guy says, no. And then, But before the guy can say anything, he says, hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the Lord. It almost seems like he's trying to keep the guy from blaspheming the name of God. Don't blaspheme God. God's the one that, that's doing this. And look, let me tell you something. When you find yourself in the judgment of God, don't blaspheme God. You don't have to turn here. You can go back to Amos, but I'll read to you from Proverbs 29.1. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. When you harden your neck, he that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. I was just talking to my wife about, about this, but it, it's interesting when you, when you look, you go back to Amos. It's interesting when you look at the story of Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh in Egypt is known for the ten plagues. But something that jumped out at me one time when I was reading through the book of Exodus years ago is that when God initially sent Moses down to Egypt, when God initially sent Moses down, he told Moses, Pharaoh has taken my son Israel and I will take his son. I will take his firstborn because he's taken my firstborn, is what God told Moses. So before Moses ever showed up to Egypt, the plan always was for the children in Egypt, the firstborn children in Egypt, to die. God already knew that that's what it was going to take to get them to free the children of Israel. But then you get there, and that's not what you get. It's not called the one plague of Egypt. It's called the ten plagues of Egypt. And before you get to that tenth plague, which was actually what God sent Moses down there to do, you've got all these other plagues. You say, well, why do you have these nine plagues? If God knew that the tenth plague was the plague that was needed, why do you have all these ten other plagues? Is God just vindictive? Is God just mean? No, God is merciful. Each one of those plagues was an opportunity for Pharaoh to acknowledge God and to get right with God. And each plague after each plague after each plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Till eventually God had to break him and that without remedy. So don't harden your heart when God begins to send plagues your way. Realize that the nine plagues might be the mercy of God withholding what he knows he has to do to finally break you. So hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. You say, that sounds odd. Well, if you're going to name the Lord to blaspheme him, you might just want to hold your tongue. Go back to Amos chapter 6. We'll finish this thing up. Look at verse 11. For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house with breaches and the little houses with the collapse. God says, I'm going to destroy it all. He says, shall horses run upon the rocks? Will one plow there with oxen? For ye have turned judgment into gall and, fruit of, and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. He says, the idea is you don't run horses on rocks and you don't plow on rocks. He said, that, that doesn't get you what you need. And to turn judgment into gall and righteousness into hemlock, he said, you're not producing what you're supposed to be producing. Then he says in verse 13, ye which, so he's talking to the people, he's describing the people he's talking to, he says, ye which rejoice in a thing of naught. Isn't that us? We rejoice in things that are nothing. The stock market is nothing. 
The whatever team won, it's nothing. Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? Go back to Deuteronomy. Remember Deuteronomy, we're going to be done in two minutes. Remember Deuteronomy, he said, I'm going to bring you into a land. I'm going to bring you into a land and it's going to have the resources. It's going to have the metals. It's going to have the bread. It's going to have everything you need. And he's warning them to glorify him and to not have their hearts lifted up. Amos is telling the children of Israel that ye rejoice in the thing of nothing, of not, and have not taken, and you're saying, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? Here's what Deuteronomy says, 8.17, And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this well. He says, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. For it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth. That he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. So keep your head right. Don't get a big head. I know we live in a nation of prosperity and ease. And look, we should take full advantage of it. We live in a nation of, of freedom. We're, we, no, no one is in any imminent danger out soul winning. Worst thing that could happen to you is somebody slams the door in your face. So use it. Amos chapter 6, look at verse 14. But behold, God says, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of the wilderness. He's talking to people who are at ease. He says, woe unto them that are at ease. And God says, the truth is that I'm the one that kept you safe. I'm the one that made you rich. I'm the one that gave you wealth. And then he says in verse 14, I will raise up against you a nation. And let's just remember that we are not better than others and better than us have fallen. And things will not always be this good. So take advantage of it while it's good. But make sure that you are engaged in the right fight. Not a rebel without a cause. Because like David said, is there not a cause? Amen. And I'm here to tell you there is. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this chapter in the Bible. Amos speaking to rich, fat, wealthy, self-absorbed people. Sounds a lot like the United States of America. And help us to learn the lessons as well. Help us not to deceive, allow ourselves to deceive ourselves thinking that we did this. We did not do this. Any prosperity, any wealth, any freedom, any liberty, any, any advantage that we have is because God gave it to us. And it could be taken away in a moment. Help us take advantage of it, but help us not to make an idol of it. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.